Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 20, and in this section of our passage today, we're going to be completing our look at the resurrection. So this is the third message in this series on the resurrection that began at the very beginning of John chapter 20. And at this, so far to this point, we have learned that the tomb was found empty by Mary and by the women, and by also some of the disciples, notably Peter and John, who were recorded as racing to the tomb to see for themselves what it was they had heard. And then Mary Magdalene had returned back to the tomb, apparently by herself, as she continued to mourn over the death and the disappearance of Jesus' body. And so while Mary was there weeping, Jesus appears to her and provides for her the unimaginable proof that he is not missing. He's not even dead, but he is alive, just as he said he would be. Now, Jesus made these statements about his death and his resurrection many times throughout his earthly ministry. And those who were hostile towards him thought that these claims were just completely absurd And his disciples, who had heard this repeated over and over and over, were very unsure of what this actually meant. We have an example of this in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. His disciples, and he began, and he, to his disciples he spoke, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So even though Jesus had said this repeatedly throughout his ministry, it was very obvious after Jesus was dead on the cross, after he was buried into the tomb, and after he was reportedly no longer in the tomb, it did not occur to anyone that Jesus had actually fulfilled what he had prophesied about himself, that he would be killed and that he would be raised again. So these disciples and the women are all in shock and they're overcome with grief at the tragic events that they've just experienced. But now everything has changed because Mary has not only seen him, but she has also talked with him. He had told her, return to the disciples and share with them the news of the resurrection. And so John has recorded for us in his gospel four of ten recorded appearances of Jesus after his resurrection from the grave. We've looked at one of these in his appearance to Mary. Today in our passage, we're going to see the second and third appearance that John chooses to record for us. Let's look together in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. So when it was evening on, the first, on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been remained, retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands... And the, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So as this is a continuation of two previous messages, we're going to pick up on our outline with Roman numeral 4, and this is where Jesus appears, first of all, to Mary Magdalene, and here, number 2, Jesus appears to some disciples. Verse 19a, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, so it is evening on the first day. Now this is important for us to recognize, is that the resurrection appearance to Mary was just a few short hours ago, sometime very early in the morning. Several hours have passed, and it is now evening after the disciples have heard of the news from Mary themselves about Jesus' appearance and his resurrection and the conversation that he had with her. So sometime after the appearance to Mary, Luke records that Jesus appears on the road to Emmaus, And he speaks with a couple of men who are journeying back from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they are discussing the unforgettable events of that weekend. So Luke records for us that while these men are walking and talking about what had happened, Jesus appears to them and joins them in their journey. And Jesus begins to explain to them why all of these things had to happen. After this very encouraging and insightful conversation, these men invite Jesus to stay with them because Luke records the hour was getting late. And so they want to sit and talk with Jesus longer, and they invite him to stay for a meal. So Luke records in chapter 24, verses 30 and 31, when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. What's interesting about this is that all along the way, as they were talking about the events that had happened, they did not recognize who Jesus was. Whether they weren't familiar with his face or his voice, or if in fact they were precluded from being able to recognize Jesus, whatever the reason, they had had this lengthy conversation and actually were sitting around the table with him, and it wasn't until he broke the bread and blessed it that the blinders were removed from their eyes and they recognized him as Jesus the Christ. Immediately, Jesus disappears. So Luke tells us that these two men that had heard about the angels appearing to the women and the message that they were told, now they had seen Jesus himself. They had actually had a very lengthy conversation with him and they were sitting at a table to eat with him. Luke goes on to tell us in verses 33 through 35, and they got up at that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences 
Jesus on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Now, Luke refers to an appearance by Jesus to Peter that is not recorded in any of the Gospels, so we don't have any details about when that actually took place and what was discussed or what was revealed at that revelation. But what we learn here in the Gospel of John is that the the disciples are gathered together. These two men from Emmaus have now rejoined them and are telling of their experience with Jesus himself, and that they are all in a locked room. When it says the door was shut, that is the implication, is that they have secured themselves in this room. Verse 19b, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And so that is the ramifications of the door being shut, this still being the first day Jesus killed on Friday, disappeared from the tomb that day on Sunday morning, has already appeared to Mary and now to these two individuals on the road to Emmaus. And so the disciples were still gripped by fear at what the religious leaders might do to them. If the religious leaders were intent on killing their leader and they could be identified as being with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was arrested, what might they do to us? So they were fearful. They were locked into this room. The disciples from Emmaus, whoever they were, have appeared to them and are telling them what is going on. So the reference here to the disciples is really very unclear, but it seems likely that from Luke's account, the group includes more than just the ten disciples, even though Luke references the eleven. Now, we reference the ten here because Judas is already dead, and by virtue of what is stated in verse 24, by John's account, Thomas is not yet with this group. So it is clear from John's first-hand account that the disciples were gathered into this room. They were concerned about what the religious leaders might do to them, But there's no indication exactly as to the number of disciples that would have been included in this appearance that is about to take place. So even after seeing the empty tomb and hearing what the women were told by the angels and Mary seeing and talking to Jesus, they were still very much afraid and locked into the room. And as the men from Emmaus are recounting their journey and their experience with Jesus, Jesus suddenly appears to them. Verse 19c. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So Luke 23, verses 34 and following, is in many respects a parallel account to what John is recording for us here. But Luke chooses to record some information that John does not. For example, in Luke 24, 36, While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So this is a connection of the men who were on the road to Emmaus talking with Jesus, returning to Jerusalem, and now meeting with those that were gathered in the upper room. And these men are now retelling all that Jesus had told to them, and Jesus magically appears out of nowhere. Just as his resurrection body passed through the grave clothes without disturbing them at all, He disappears from the table where they are gathered together and breaking bread in Emmaus. And now Jesus magically just materializes through this locked door. And what it tells us is this, is that in his glorified body, 
Jesus is not bound by time or space. In fact, the resurrection appearances, ten of which are recorded over 40 days, doesn't give us any indication or idea of where Jesus was before or after these appearances. And so it could be very accurately speculated that Jesus reascended into heaven for reasons that we could never fully know or understand, and then chooses to reappear with very specific purposes in mind. So here he is gathered with these disciples. He looks into their terrified faces, and he gives to them the very common and conventional Jewish greeting, which is, Peace be with you. This greeting, by the way, is still used today, and there are variations of it used at all of it used within all of the Arabic community, even today. It's just a common way of greeting someone, much of how we might say, "Hello, how are you?" So, in this parallel account that Luke records, the disciples thought they were seeing a ghost. They'd heard about what the angels told the women. They heard about what Mary had told them in her conversation with Jesus herself. They've heard what these individuals from Emmaus have communicated to them. And now that they are seeing Jesus for themselves, they are terrified, and Luke records, that they thought they were seeing a ghost. So it's very clear that these disciples need significant reassurance. They couldn't possibly be hallucinating could they? And so they need reassurance that this is, in fact, Jesus, the risen Lord. So this moves us to number five in our outline. And in this point, we see that Jesus prepares. He has always been about preparing his disciples. He was preparing them to believe in who he claimed to be. He was preparing them to carry out the apostolic ministry that the Father had called them to. He was preparing them as apostles, some as teachers, some as evangelists, some as servants. But Jesus never stopped in his preparation of his followers until his final ascension is recorded in the book of Acts. So Jesus completes four tasks here in this appearance as recorded in John. Number one, he gives them proof. They need undeniable proof that Jesus is in fact alive, that it isn't a figment of anyone's imagination. They need to see it and know it for themselves. And this is exactly what Jesus does for them. Thinking that they're seeing a ghost or a spirit or some other non-human thing, Jesus provides for them all the proof that they're ever going to need. He shows them His hands and He shows them His feet, which are scarred from the crucifixion. Luke 24:39. Luke adds this detail. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So this is the indisputable proof that the disciples need that Jesus is providing for them. That He was not only killed on the cross, proven by the scars that He exhibits in His body, but He was also raised from the dead and He stands before them in bodily form. These wounds, which had occurred only a couple of days earlier, were now completely healed. They were completely scarred over. And it proves that Jesus was victorious 
in conquering both death and the grave. So this response to the overwhelming proof is very obvious as recorded in verse 20, section B. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. There was no more debating. There was no more questioning. There was nothing else in their hearts except for an absolute confidence that Jesus himself stood before them and they were filled with joy. They were seeing their beloved Lord and their teacher alive. No longer the memory of Jesus on the cross, so fresh and so vivid in their minds, but here he is, physically restored, not in spirit, but in a glorified body. They could see him, they could touch him, they could talk with him. And Luke also adds the detail that Jesus ate broiled fish with them. Jesus, the God-man, fully God and fully man, who dies on the cross as the atonement for sin, is raised from the dead and is now before them in a glorified body, still fully God, still exhibiting the traits of a man who talks and walks and eats with his followers. So being comforted with this unimaginable proof, Jesus moves on in the continuation of his preparation. Number two, he gives them their commission. Verse 21a. So Jesus said to them, peace be with you. Now, we just heard Jesus say this very common and very conventional greeting, but it isn't incidental that Jesus repeats it here after proving to them beyond a shadow of a doubt that he really has been raised from the dead and that he himself is really standing before them. This repeating of this common Jewish greeting is designed to cause deep reflection on what Jesus has said to them previously. Now this takes us back to John chapter 16 when Jesus had gathered the disciples in the upper room when he was going to give to them the very long and the very detailed farewell discourse where he would announce that Judas was going to betray him, that Peter was going to deny him. And then he began to prepare them for his imminent departure. So when Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departures, part of what he said to them, part of the recurring theme that was a part of this farewell discourse was the imparting of peace from Jesus to his disciples. In fact, in John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Also, in John 13, 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace, and in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So the restatement of this peace greeting is designed to remind the disciples of all that he had already taught them as he was preparing them for his departure, and that was his promise of peace to them. Verse 21b continues, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So it is in the giving of this commission that Jesus gives this with the embedment or the embodiment of the peace that Jesus is going to provide. Now this commission is in fact a preview of the great commission that Jesus would give to them 
and the final moments before Jesus would ascend for the very last time. That commission is very simply to go and make disciples, teaching and evangelizing and accomplishing what God intended the ministry that they were going to accomplish to do. So Jesus is giving them this commission to teach, to make disciples, to evangelize, to do the ministry that God has called them to do. And they are to do this in the peace that God provides through Christ. So just as the Father sent Jesus to the earth with a very specific purpose in mind, and that is to be the atoning sacrifice on the cross, Jesus is likewise sending his followers into the world with a very specific purpose in mind, and that is fulfilling the ministry that God has called them to. Now, Jesus has found them locked away in a room driven by fear, and he is sending them into the world to serve him as ministers and as ambassadors for him, and he's doing so with the confidence that they can undertake this task with peace. So just as he had indicated in the farewell discourse, he isn't leaving them alone. He isn't going to send them out on this commission alone. Number three, he gives them their power. Verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now this verse has caused considerable debate among Christian scholars and theologians. I was very surprised at the length of the conversation that exists about this very verse. It's very lengthy. It is very complicated. It is extremely technical. But it really comes down to do to two very simple things. Number one, this is literal, and it is the actual infusion of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised would come. Now, one of the reasons that this position is argued is because its adherents believe that John understood the resurrection, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and the ascension of Jesus as a single unified event, not separated by at least 40 days, as we would see recorded in the Gospel accounts. The other option here, number two, is that this is symbolic and prophetic as to what would actually happen in the very near future. So this view harmonizes the Gospel of John with what is recorded in the book of Acts, specifically the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So going back to what Jesus said in John 16:7, he said, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So in the the immediate sense, Jesus did go away by dying on the cross and disappearing. But he has also returned in the form of these post-resurrection appearances. And so it could be argued that in his return, he is bringing the Holy Spirit to give to them, but we also would read in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So, if Jesus' giving of the Holy Spirit 
was predicated on his actual permanent removal from them, then it stands to reason that the Holy Spirit would come when Jesus would no longer make bodily post-resurrection experiences for his disciples to be strengthened by, encouraged by, comforted by, or to have an ongoing dialogue with Jesus if he were to appear in bodily form. So this second symbolic and prophetic example is probably what is in mind here. But this view also makes sense in that the disciples don't begin their apostolic ministries until after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is recorded in the second chapter of Acts, upon which immediately Jesus begins to preach and we see multitudes of believers being added to the church day by day. So if we were to take this first example that Jesus was actually imparting the Holy Spirit to them, then why was there such a lengthy delay in their very public earthly ministry and why, as we find later on in our passage, a week later were they still locked up in a room waiting for more developments to happen. So it seems most likely that what Jesus is referring to in the breathing on them, what he is doing, is that he is symbolically reminding them and prophetically telling them that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them as they live out the commission that he is sending them into the world to live out, and they will do so in the peace that he provides. Now, the fourth thing that Jesus accomplished, the fourth task in his preparation, is he gives them their message. Verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, not surprisingly, this verse has, has created considerable misunderstanding, most specifically within the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, and it is very similar to the misunderstanding that took place when Jesus talked about giving to Peter the keys of the kingdom. So what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 19 is, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So Roman Catholics believe and have taught that the power of forgiveness given to the apostles referenced here in verse 23 was passed to the Catholic Church through Peter, who was given the keys of the kingdom, and therefore this enables the Catholic Church to absolve individuals of their sin. So this is why it is necessary in the Catholic Church for an individual to go to confession, to confess their sins to the priest, and the priest, under the authority of the Catholic Church, and of the papal tracing all the way back to Peter, have the ability to absolve someone of their sin. So this is what the Roman Catholics believe, and this is what they teach. But we have to ask ourselves this question, and it's very simply this. Do people have the ability to forgive sin? Do the apostles have the ability to extend the forgiveness of sin? Do Catholic priests actually have the ability to forgive sin? Well, the answer to that question is no. 
Now, if you offend me, I can forgive you of that offense. If you do something wrong to me, I can forgive you of that offense. But what Peter, excuse me, what Jesus is referring to here, and what the Catholic Church is implying here, is that this forgiveness is imparted not by an individual to an individual, but from God to an individual. I don't have the ability to extend forgiveness on behalf of God. An apostle and a Catholic priest do not have the ability to extend forgiveness on behalf of God. Only God extends forgiveness from himself to mankind. We read this all the way back in the early part of Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 2. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6, But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the religious leaders who had denied Jesus' authority to forgive sin and are wrong in denying that because Jesus is God in the flesh, but what they do is they correctly state that only God can forgive sin. So on the one hand, the religious leaders speak truth. Only God can forgive sin. On the other hand, they deny the truth, and that truth is that Jesus is God. So what is being said in this verse in John, just like in Matthew 16 with the keys of the kingdom, is very simply this. Jesus is delegating the authority to declare forgiveness to those seeking it based upon the authority of God's Word, but not on the individual person's granting of forgiveness. So when a sinner comes to Christ and he confesses his sin and asks to be forgiven and cleansed of his sin, what do we say? Well, what we say is this. Upon the authority of God's Word, God declares you clean and forgiven. What do we say about someone who has not come to faith in Christ, who has never sought forgiveness of their sin? Well, what we say is this, that based upon the authority of God's Word, you will be separated from God for all eternity and a place called hell because you have not been forgiven of your sin. So what Jesus says here in John, just like what he said in Matthew chapter 16, is very simply this. The message of the gospel is forgiveness in Jesus Christ through your faith in Him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, and upon your placing of faith in Him, and upon your confession of sin, by authority of the words of Jesus, and by the authority of God's Word, you are forgiven. I can forgive you of your offense to me. I cannot forgive you in your offense to God. That is God's prerogative alone. We cannot allow anyone into heaven by forgiving them of their sin. We cannot condemn anyone into hell by holding their sin against them. The disciples couldn't do that either. They were simply messengers of the gospel message, and that is forgiveness in Christ through faith or rejection by Christ because of a lack of faith. 
We simply are messengers of the authoritative truth of God's word. We are not the ones who determine what is the authoritative truth of God's word. So John, excuse me, Jesus is not giving to the disciples the ability to forgive sin by telling them that whatever sins they forgive are forgiven or whatever they retain are retained. He's simply saying them to them by the authority of the gospel message and by me delegating you as my messengers, you have the ability to communicate this truth. So, the other disciples, excuse me, um, Thomas, one of the original twelve, is not in this greeting, is not in this meeting of the disciples. We can only speculate as to why, and believe me, there's a lot of speculation why he wasn't there. Perhaps he was distraught, perhaps he didn't want to socialize, perhaps he was afraid that he and the others would be arrested. We can only speculate about why Thomas wasn't there. We just simply don't know. But the other disciples pass along to Thomas what had actually taken a place, what they had seen and what they had heard, and this is what is recorded for us in verses 24 and 25. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So on account of this, Thomas gets a pretty bad rap. He is known as Doubting Thomas. He needs to see Jesus for himself, and for some reason, the first-hand report of the disciples is not enough. Thomas's faith was very weak. He needed to see a sign in order to believe these things that he has just heard. But truth be told, all of the disciples, not just Thomas, were weak in faith, and it took very personal and very intentional work of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit to cause belief to come to them. And Jesus was very willing to do it. So in Roman numeral 6, we see Jesus' appearance to Thomas. After eight days, the disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Now, It is a full week later. The phrase eight days means one week. And I can't explain to you why the Jewish time account calls it that, but that's just what they call it. So again, the disciples are gathered together in a room, and you'll note that that the doors are shut up, and that means that the doors are locked. They are secured in with all that Jesus has said to them a week earlier, where he has given them his peace, where he has given them the commission, where he has given them the power, where he has given them the message. Here they are a week later, still very fearful and locked up into this room. And again, this is also likely why the second explanation of Jesus breathing on them was symbolic and not literal. makes a lot of sense. So as they are gathered together, and this time Jesus is with them, Jesus materializes out of nowhere, coming through the door that has been shut, And there again, he stands in their midst and he greets them with the Jewish conventional phrase, peace be with you. So Peter's return to the room a week later appears to be solely focused on Thomas. And what this tells me, at least, is that Jesus is very gracious. Verse 27, 
Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it in my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now Jesus knew exactly what Thomas said about what it would take for him to believe. And Jesus knew what Thomas needed, and that was very simply this, a personal reassurance. Now, although Thomas gets a bad rap for being a doubting Thomas, and although the other disciples still exhibited a very weak faith all throughout their lives, we aren't that far removed from wanting to see, asking to see some kind of a personal reassurance so that we can have faith, so that we can have peace. And it's just a part of our human experience. It's a part of our journey from, an era, from a very imperfect sinner to a sinner saved by grace who is on the way to being perfected but will never actually be perfected in this lifetime. We are all weak in faith at various ways at various times. And there are times when we ourselves seek for, ask for a personal reassurance And this is exactly what Jesus provides for Thomas just a week later. Now, no other gospel records this appearance from Jesus to Peter, to Thomas. And in this, there is no harsh rebuke. Jesus only gives to Thomas what he needs. That is the personal reassurance. And the result of that is that Thomas believes. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, There's no indication that Thomas actually touched the scarred reminders of Jesus' death. John doesn't provide that detail, although it is a first-hand account. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. My personal opinion is that when Thomas saw Jesus standing before him, he didn't need any other visible proof. He believed. Thomas makes a most profound confession when he says, my Lord and my God. He gives to Jesus the full measure of belief in his deity that he is God. You are my Lord and you are my God. You're not just a prophet. You're just not a rabbi. You're just not a special teacher. You are my Lord and you are my God. And it assuredly changes Thomas's life Forever. By the way, Thomas would go on to die as a martyr in his execution as a messenger of Jesus Christ, fulfilling the commission that he received from Jesus himself. Now, not only does Thomas believe at the visible appearance of Jesus, but Thomas and the others are given this future blessing. This future blessing is foretold by Jesus in verse 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who see and yet believed. Excuse me, blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. So while this might sound like, and while it might be considered as an indictment against Thomas for his lack of belief, and some might see this as a rebuke from Jesus to Thomas, it can also be considered a rhetorical question that leads to this beautiful promise that Jesus makes to them, and that is this, it's faith without seeing. 
This makes a lot of sense when you think about what Jesus has prepared them for and their apostolic ministry, that they are going to go out and carry out this commission in peace in the power of the Holy Spirit, that they are going to be messengers of the gospel, and those who hear and believe are not going to need to see Jesus in order to believe. This is exactly what their apostolic ministry was going to be all about. It was going to be about teaching and proving that Jesus is who he claimed to be and had raised from the dead, was raised from the dead just as he said he would be. They are eyewitnesses of that and they are now messengers of this life changing message to the world. So Jesus will ascend in a few weeks and they will be left with the task of sharing the truth about who Jesus was, about what Jesus said and did, how they had seen him alive after his brutal death, and they would do so without the bodily appearance of Jesus to give any kind of second-hand verification of the message that they claimed. Now, we today are evidence of this future blessing that Jesus gives. We have never seen him but yet we believe. We don't need to see a physical bodily appearance of Jesus in order for us to believe. And from the 2,000 years after Jesus' ascension and the millions upon millions of people who have placed their faith in Christ, it is evidence of the blessing that Jesus foretold as he reminds Thomas and the others that there will be many who will believe yet they have not seen We are greatly blessed in that we believe even though we haven't seen. But one day we will see him and we will confess like Thomas, my Lord and my God. Now, John gives us his purpose in writing not only the gospel, but in writing this account. And his purpose is to evangelize. So taking up the theme of those who would come to believe without ever seeing Jesus, John says this, In verses 30 and 31, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, we're going to talk in greater detail about this next week. But these final two verses, some mistake as being a conclusion to John's gospel, which means that chapter 21 was added by an unknown author who was likely not John, and it doesn't fit with what appears to be this logical conclusion to John's Gospel. But when we think about what John has just said in recounting what Jesus has told them, is that there will be many who will believe and not see John basically extends that thought by saying that these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now John's purpose in writing the gospel was to evangelize. He wasn't primarily speaking to a Jewish audience. He was speaking to those who were seeking the truth about Jesus, both Jewish proselytes, and also those who were from 
a non-Jewish background, and he was very simply explaining who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And so verses 30 and 31 are a way of continuing what Jesus had prophetically foretold about those who would believe without seeing. And many conservative and reputable, reputable scholars disagree that John 21 was added much later by John himself or added much later by someone other than John. And we will examine and explore that next time we are together. So as we take a look at this final resurrection appearance in this first week, we see what Jesus' intent was, and that was continuing the preparation of his disciples for the apostolic ministry. They were to go out into the world. They were to preach and teach and baptize. And by virtue of our believing in the message that they initiated, as recorded in the book of Acts, we are to carry on that same commission and sharing and teaching and evangelizing to those who have not seen and are interested in believing. There's more that we'll learn in John 21 as Jesus deals now with Peter specifically and restoring him back to his position of fellowship and in his ministry. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we are so thankful for the truth of your word. We're so thankful about what it teaches us. We thank you, Father, that your death and disappearing body was not the end of the story, but you did appear. You appeared to Mary. You appeared to the disciples. You appeared to Thomas and other disciples. You appeared to many over a period of 40 days, proving that you were who you claimed to be and that you were raised from the dead and that you live forevermore. And by virtue of our union with you, we share and your victory over death and the grave. And we longingly await for your return or for your calling us home so that we can be where you are for all eternity. God, I pray that you would burden our hearts with not only the great truth that is shared with us about validating all you claim to be, but we would also be very mindful of the reason that we are saved, not to occupy the seat in a church, not just to have our lives changed, but to be messengers of the gospel message, that message you imparted to these men, this message that would change the world and, in fact, turn it upside down, the message that is alive and well today and changing lives all over this globe. May we be faithful to follow in what you've called us to do as these men were. We give you thanks for this time and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.